41, second sentence. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus, or when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him, and let him go. May the Lord bless the reading of his precious word to us this evening. Brethren, as we've been uh, working our way through the doctrine of grace, I had initially thought to deal uh, with every unit uh, positively presenting the doctrine as we understand it, and then spending... um, some weeks dealing with the objections to the doctrine in um, some detail. And I've uh, begun to think that for the present that would not be the best way to approach this. Um, I'm fearful at this point that we will uh, be bogged down to such a degree that we will not get on to some of the other things that I would like for us uh, to approach. We can always come back dealing with certain objections, and I will deal with some, uh, but not in the uh, detail that I normally like to pursue. Uh, I I do not want us to uh, become so entrenched in wrestling through the objections sometimes that we do not plainly um, hold on to the clear presentation of the truth uh, as we have it. And I don't want to spend an, an inordinate amount of time on this particular subject this time through. So, the Lord willing, we will uh, conclude the radical depravity of man this evening and then move on to the uh, next in our Doctrine of Grace um, the next time we meet. Now, just as a brief review to catch us up with what we've looked at over the weeks, though man was created good, as a created being, He was mutable. In other words, he could change. He could change, and he did change. God had warned, For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The word death, as we've already studied, means separation. Though we often think of it simply as the termination of human life, it is far more than that. As we have seen plainly from the, the words of Scripture, That in the moment that Adam sinned, he died spiritually. And he passed that on to his children. The separation of his soul from his body, his physical death, was included in his being spiritually separated from God. But his spiritual separation came first. His physical termination came later. But the condition of his spiritual death was passed on to all his descendants. He, uh, Adam was cut off from his spiritual communion with God and his 
children throughout the ages have been born in that darkness. Now, the Bible clearly demonstrates that sin radically changed man. Adam's son Cain murdered his brother Abel, the very first generation of children, ended in great tragedy. Man's sinful condition passed from generation to generation. As we saw in Genesis chapter 6 and chapter 8, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. As Eliphaz pointed, uh, pointedly questioned Job, What is man that he should be clean? And he which is born of a woman, that he should be righteous. Behold, he putteth no trust in his saints. Yea, the heavens are not clean in his sight. How much more abominable and filthy is man which drinketh iniquity like water. Truly, God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. We then considered the doctrine of original sin. Original sin is not the very first sin committed. But when we speak of original sin, we are talking about the corruption and guilt that are a part of every man's nature because of Adam's first sin. We are all sinners because of original sin. And this is what Romans 5.19 means when it says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. Many were constituted sinners. Now the prophet Jeremiah clearly announced man's problem. This is a passage we've looked at a couple of times, but it is always important for us to remind ourselves of. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the Lord Jesus Himself gave us even greater detail. As we saw in Mark 7, verses 21 through 23. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile the man. We are in this condition because of original sin. And the root of original sin is our father Adam. Our hearts are wicked, rebellious, set on their own ways, and full of selfishness. All that we are comes from the root of our problem, which is our own hearts. All of this traceable back to Adam. So, we say that man is spiritually dead. Every one of Adam's children cut off from the life of God because of his guilt in Adam and because of his own rebellions against the Heavenly Father. Now, Paul wrote to the Colossians, And you, being dead in your, your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
Likewise to the Ephesians. You have the quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. These are all familiar verses to us here. But we're bringing all the thoughts that we have looked at uh, bit by bit over the last few weeks together so that we may see the whole picture. And this is why Paul says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. He is spiritually dead. This spiritual separation from God emanates from original sin, which is traced all the way back to Adam. We are in this condition because Adam, our representative, fell into wickedness and rebellion against God the Father. And we now are sinners because his wicked nature has been passed on to every one of us. Therefore, the things of the Spirit are foolishness to us in our natural condition. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14 continues saying, For they, meaning the things of the Spirit, are foolishness unto him, the natural man. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. That's the very heart and soul of the doctrine that we're talking about, brethren. They cannot, we cannot, no man can discern the things of God. He can read the Bible. He can memorize the Bible. But apart from the Spirit of God opening in his heart in a glorious act of grace, he will never truly discern and embrace savingly those things. This is our doctrine. This is how we understand the Word of God. And in the sense that as a willful creature, man's acts are voluntary, not by compulsion. When we say that God has ordained all things and that within that <clears throat> is comprehended man's rebellion against God, we are not teaching that God sins in man. This is not the doctrine. And yet there are those who can hear us speak over and over and that's what they come away with. And uh, tragically presses me to think of 1 Corinthians 2.14. <clears throat> I fear that many who, who despise this doctrine while professing evangelicalism have simply never been illuminating to the saving grace of Christ, but are claiming and clutching to their own acts as the root of their own salvation. Man is free to be what he is, which is a dead sinner. The problem is not that man cannot make choices. As we saw last week, we are not saying that men do not have a will. He has a will. He is a volitional creature and uses it all the time, every day. But because he is dead in trespasses and sins, rooted in original sin, Traced back to Adam. His will is bound toward saving himself. He cannot and he will not do that which is spiritually acceptable to God. 
Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. So, the problem is that because of a blinded mind, a wicked heart, and spiritual deadness, he will not, he volitionally will not choose what is right. And even though he may do things that externally appear to be right, if they are not done in faith, they are sin. That which is not of faith is sin. And without faith it is impossible to please God. Brethren, we do not find lost men to be robots. We find them to be volitional creatures, willful beings, bound in their trespasses and their sins, spiritually dead, cut off from God, and in desperate need of the grace of Almighty God. The mind and the will of man are distinct faculties. Because the mind is fallen, the will is bound to and by it. Our choices are always determined by the inclination of our will. And man's will is bound by his wicked nature. Now, we will take up what is probably the the main objection that is normally brought against this doctrine. most common objection is this, and you will read it in the literature over and over and over and over. Pelagius said it, Erasmus said it, Arminius said it, Wesley said it, Finney said it, many others. The objection is, if God commands a man to do something, then that implies man must be able to do it. That's the primary argument. If you will spend much time talking with people about the things of Christ and about the doctrine of God's grace, what you will normally hear when you begin to talk about the bondage of men's will is the argument that if God commands it, then obviously men are able to do it. Therefore, free will is a reality because God commands men to repent and believe. Otherwise, God wouldn't be fair in judging them for not doing it. This is what we hear. Now, let me give you the illustration of this objection. I don't know that anyone has said it any better than Charles Finney. Now, you need to understand that most of the people that we deal with in modern evangelicalism are often mistakenly called Arminians because they do not hold to God's sovereign grace. But the, the fact of the matter is most of us are encountering, encountering Finneyites. Charles Finney is, the mod, is, is one of the fathers of modern evangelicalism, especially as far as revivalism goes. <clears throat> Finney said it this way in his systematic theology. 
moral agency implies the possession of free will. By free will is intended the power of choosing or refusing to choose in every instance in compliance with moral obligation. Free will implies the power of originating and deciding our own choices and of exercising our own sovereignty in every instance of choice, in every instance of choice, upon moral questions of deciding or choosing in conformity with duty or otherwise in all cases of moral obligation. In other words, Finney is probably the most Pelagian man in the last two centuries, called a, uh, an evangelical Christian, but this is all a matter of man's will. When good or evil is set before you, you can do right if you want to. Now you see, where many Calvinists will err at this point is they'll say, well, man just doesn't have any choice. Now that's too ambiguous. Of course, he has the choice. He will never make the right one. Okay? That's the point. Let me go on with Finney. I can only read a few sentences at a time. Because <laughs> I get so aggravated with what he says. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> that man cannot be under a moral obligation to perform an absolute impossibility is a first truth of reason. Now, this is a very important sentence. Notice, what he makes the authority for his statement is reason, not the Word of God. In fact, you won't find a verse of Scripture in here. He basically pontificates his position. Mr. Finney, how can you prove your position? Because it's not reasonable what you people believe. And there we have it. <clears throat> that man cannot be under a moral obligation to, prefer, to perform an absolute impossibility is a first truth of reason. But man's causality, his whole power of causality to perform or do anything lies in his will. If he cannot will, he can do nothing. His whole liberty or freedom must consist in his power to will. All right? His outward actions and his mental states are connected with the actions of his will by a verse of scripture? No, by a law of necessity. If I will to move my muscles, they must move, unless there be a paralysis of the nerves of voluntary motion, or unless some resistance be opposed that overcomes the power of my volitions. He says, I can will at anything unless something bigger than me keeps me from willing. At least keeps me from doing what I want to do. The sequences of choice or volition are always <clears throat> under the law of necessity. And you hear the language over and over, brethren, uh, in, in one sense, and I do not mean to be uh, overly harsh, but in one sense, Finney is, in, is no different here in the way he's expressing what he's saying than the pagan Greeks who said that man is the measure of all things. 
Man is the measure of all things. He says, I can't be free if I don't have my free will. But then, if you were listening carefully, you will notice that he was contrasting it without any power to will. And we're not saying man is without any power to will. We're saying he has power to will, which he exercises sinfully every moment of his life until Christ regenerates him. And if he has no freedom, he is not a moral agent. That is, he is incapable of moral action and also of moral character. You know, in other words, God can't hold me responsible if I don't have my choice to do right or wrong. And this is the argument, brother. Finney and his uh, systematic theology and his work on revival is, is uh, a textbook in the charismatic movement, in many of the uh, Pentecostal groups, and in many, many Southern Baptist groups. Free will, then, in the above-defined sense, must be a condition of moral agency and, of course, of moral obligation. Now, <clears throat> I don't want to be unfair to Mr. Finney. I, I, I would love to read you three or four pages so that it wouldn't appear that I'm just taking one paragraph out of context. But I think enough has been said here, and I will not attempt to uh, dig around in his words too much. I think they're pretty plain. Um, but the, the first thing that's vital for you to recognize is that there's no appeal to Scripture here. Not the first not the first attempt to appeal to Scripture. If you read his uh, lectures on revival, page after page after page goes on about the fact that revival is something that men do. And there's not one verse of Scripture quoted. At one time, I even counted how far into the book it went before there was any Scripture even appealed to. Now, brethren... What was important for Mr. Finney is that from where I sit, he says, if I can't choose what's right or wrong, then God can't judge me as a moral being. Well, hello, Pelagius. That's what Pelagius said. And this is, this is part and parcel of even what the semi-Pelagians have said. And why? Why is this? Well, because it's not reasonable. What's the measure of this doctrine. Reason! Now, at least some of the Arminians with more integrity appeal to certain passages to try to prove their point. But uh, this at least gives us some idea of the objection that we're talking about. Whether a few verses are attempted uh, as a, a witness to this or whether just more argumentation of the philosophical nature piles up, uh, this is the argument. Now, as we said last week, we believe that man has a will. And we believe that he is a sinner dead in trespasses and sins. And we've appealed to passage after passage after passage from the heart of man 
and from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Man's problem is his heart, and he is dead and bound in his trespasses and sins. His will is inseparable from what he is. He has a will, he will use it sinfully. One of the charges that generally comes along with this is, well, you people, you just say that man doesn't have a choice. And unfortunately, there are those who hold to our doctrine that unfortunately will nod their heads very loud at that. I guess you can hear something rattle. They They will nod their heads and they will say, yes, that's right. And that's incorrect. No man has a choice in this sense. God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. When you tell your children, go clean up your room, you're not saying, would you like to clean up your room? You're telling them what to do. But now you know good and well that they may not do it. There is a choice, so to speak, set before them in the command. And when the Scripture says, Believe! God's not playing games. He's commanding men to believe. But men will not believe. When Adam was created, his choice could go in either direction. Adam could choose to say, Yes, I will obey the Lord, or No, I will not. He was truly free. He was created good, but mutable. When he fell, he did not lose the power of choice. He lost the ability to use it properly. This is vital, brethren. This is important. He perpetrated the greatest act of genocide in all of history. He destroyed generations of his descendants because they are born into this life bound in their trespasses and sins, dead in their trespasses and sins, and choosing that which is wicked. Enemies against God by the desires of their mind and their outward external sins as well. So, if I can put it this way, Adam, Adam's will could go two directions. And with his fall, man's will could only go one direction. His own way. And, <clears throat> when a man is born of God's Spirit, He is alive and in union with the risen Christ. And His will has now been enabled to do that which is right once again. We now will believe. We now desire to walk in the things of God. And we have the power to do those things. Am I speaking philosophically? No, I'm speaking Pauline theology. For it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do. Notice, to will 
desire. Ezekiel 36, I will put a new heart within you. I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Cause in the sense of being a robot? No, he causes us by giving us a new heart that desires the things of God. And this is why we want his word. This is why we want to pray. This is why we love the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not mindless robots on the string of God's sovereignty. We are those alive and in union with the Most High God. And we are living out the life that the Spirit of God brings us to. Brethren, that's, that's what the Scriptures are teaching. So, how do we ultimately answer this objection? Now, some of you should be wondering if, if you, if you, one of those who listens and tries to hold us all together and work through, someone sooner or later has got to go, hey, why did he read that passage about Lazarus? <laughs> what does this have to do with what we're studying? Well, now we're going to find out. God's requirements and man's responsibilities have not changed even though man has. This is the answer. This is the answer to this objection. God has always, by His holy nature, required that men be holy and do that which is right. Man was created in the image of God, the holy, the thrice holy God. Pure, righteous, good, and His requirements have not changed simply because man fell into rebellion. The same standard, His holiness and His purity, set forth in His law and in the glorious commands in person and work of Christ are set before us. Nothing in that sense has changed. Unfortunately, those who disagree with us so very often, because they are man-centered, can only see it from the perspective of, well, me and what and my say in this thing. I've already given you the illustration. I repeat it for those who haven't been with us. The fact that in one of the, in a Bible study uh, that took place in a church that I used to be in, as well, one was unfolding this doctrine, a man act, act, actually stood up red-faced and said, Wait a minute. You mean to tell me I didn't have anything to do with my salvation? Now, brethren, what I want us to get a hold of with that one illustration is then in that sentence is their theology. In that one sentence is their theology in a nutshell. What about me in this whole thing here? What about my part? My contribution? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you gave me the grace. That's fine. But I'm the one that said, yeah. Right? And we're talking about a man-centered issue. And brethren, for us, the whole issue is who gets the glory. Amen. The glory is to our God. Now, man's obligation to God simply has not changed. Therefore, because man has fallen into sin, God is not going to lower the standard. So therefore, all men 
are required of God to repent and turn to Him. He commands all men everywhere to repent. It is the duty of every creature, every man created in the image of God, to stop sinning and do what his God says. The Lord isn't sitting up there just going, Ah, well, you know, they blew it. Hmm, well, I guess, you know, we'll lower the, the bar a little bit. You know, we'll, okay, let's see, we'll... They can't do this, well, they can't do that. Well, I'll get, the, I'll get the bar down low enough to something they can do. It isn't what God's doing. He's holy. He cannot deny Himself. And men are sinful. They must repent, but they will not, except in His mercy, when God comes and opens their hearts to do exactly what He calls them to do. Every man that refuses to repent is guilty before God because the will he still has is still in rebellion against God and refuses to repent. You see, we illustrate what we're talking about here with Lazarus. Let's look at him now. Notice it says in verse 43, when he had thus spoken, or when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Now stop and ask yourself a question. Did Jesus Christ command someone to do something that in and of himself he could not do? Absolutely. Lazarus couldn't get up out of that tomb by himself. But that didn't change the fact that the God who made the heavens and the earth standing incarnate called him forth. And he called him and by his glorious power raised him in what he himself could not do. And brethren, so it is, even with us. All men are commanded to repent of their sins and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. None will. The fact that God commands doesn't mean that we have the ability. It means it's our responsibility. In His mercy, He comes by His Spirit and opens the hearts of those who are His beloved from before the foundation of the world. Brethren, that's grace. That's the grace of God. When God comes to those who in and of themselves spiritually are as dead as Lazarus. And notice, there's the old saying, that if the Lord had not said Lazarus, when He said, Come forth, every dead body on the planet would have come out of the grave. Exactly the truth. But He called someone specific out of the grave, didn't He? And brethren, so it is with everyone here who knows and understands the Gospel. Brethren, who will you praise when you understand that? Will you stand red-faced?
and say, What? I didn't have a part in this? But will you fall on your face before Him and magnify and praise His name for calling you out of darkness when otherwise you would have lain in your tomb in this life until you fell into hell in the next one? Brethren, you see, these things are important. It isn't just a matter of theological bickering. Again, as I have said to you, and I say it to drive the point home, not for needless repetition, but Martin Luther himself, 12 years after he wrote it, said, the most important thing I wrote was my children's catechism and bondage of the will. Because when he took on Erasmus in this in this argument, he said, I'm going to the issues of the heart of the gospel. It is at this point that many raise the objections, the further objections, but the Bible says, whosoever will may come. And brethren, we can say with a hearty, Amen, that is our doctrine. The operative word is not the whosoever. It's whosoever will. Will. Left to ourselves, we will not. But by the mercy, the grace, and the glory of our God, we will believe on the Lord Jesus. So I say with all of my heart, Whosoever will. Do you see your sins? Do you see your darkness? Do you understand that you have no hope without Christ? Will you come? Come to Him. Cast yourself on the mercies of Christ. The gospel call isn't go home and figure out if you're the elect or figure out how bound up you still are. The gospel call is to come to Jesus Christ. Come! Believe on Him unto everlasting life. He receives all those who will repent and believe. The glory is all His. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, I hope and pray that you would burn out of every one of us the desire to simply be theological debaters. I pray that you would burn out of our hearts and out of our flesh the desire to just to just be able to out-argue people in a prideful and sinful way. We ask that with all of our hearts you would give us a love for the truth and then to obey Thee in learning Your Word and defending Your truth. Not for any gain or pride on our part, but that You might receive all the glory and praise and honor. And may all, may all the praise of our salvation be unto Thee, O Holy Christ, in your name we pray.
This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.